Good morning. Good to see you. Glad that you're here. And uh, my name is Josh. And I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to everybody again, if you're joining us online. Really glad, <clears throat> excuse me, that you can be with us. We're celebrating the fact that God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave. And so uh, we get that opportunity then to be generous and to give. And uh, I just got to say off the top, I'm, I'm so thankful uh, to be part of a church that is so generous. And uh, it's a huge blessing to my heart. And um, just encourage you, way to go. That's cool. Um, speaking of India, though, the last time I got to go, right before COVID hit, uh, a couple years ago, uh, we got to do a little sightseeing on the last day. We had some extra time before our flight left. And so we went to this place, which is, uh, I'm gonna mess it up again, so make sure I say the right name, uh, the Galconda Fort. I said gondola earlier, so if I say that again, this service, you can know I mean Galconda. And this fort is on the western edge of Hyderabad, and it was built in the 15. Hundreds. It served for the capital for the Golconda Sultanate. Uh, you might think of it like a small kingdom, a small uh, Muslim uh, kingdom there in the 1500s, which was part of a, a Persian Shia Islamic dynasty. Well, anyway, this region, Golconda, was known, even at the time, uh, for producing diamonds. In fact, until the 17th century, it, it was the only known place in the world where diamonds were produced or could be found until some were found in Brazil in the 17th century. Well, this fort, the Gankala, I messed it up already again. What was it? The Golconda fort uh, had a vault where they stored some of these precious diamonds. We got to tour the fort that day and go all over and we were exhausted walking up and down. We slept well on the way home. I saw this guy though with this shirt said, how's the Josh? Evidently that's a saying in India of some pop culture thing. And I said, I'm good, thanks. And then kept going. <laughs> but we got to see some of these vaults where they kept these diamonds. In fact, the, it had a vault where uh, the Kohinoor and the Hope diamonds were both stored. This is the Kohinoor, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's part of the British uh, Crown Jewels collection. So in other words, Queen Elizabeth technically owns this diamond. It's 105.6 carats. Ladies, I'm guessing you probably didn't get one quite that big in your wedding ring. Uh, but actually, there's, there's a debate now. India is trying to get it back, claiming it was stolen a few hundred years ago. But its estimated worth is up to $450 million for that one precious stone. Well, it used to be held in a vault in this fort in Golconda. And the story's told of a, a Persian man who lived in this area by the name of Ali Hafed. And Ali, he once owned a large farm in Golconda. It had orchards and grain fields and gardens, just a beautiful, huge swath of land that he owned. And Ali was a wealthy man, and generally he was pretty content. He would entertain guests and was generous with what he had. And uh, one time he entertained a guest who started telling him about these uh, special rocks and stones that could be found called diamonds. And he was saying that they've been found you know, in this area and they're worth so much, they're so, so valuable, people long to have them. You could really be wealthy if you had some diamonds. Well, Ali woke up that morning a content man, but he went to bed that night discontent. 
And uh, shortly after, he sold his farm, sold everything he had, and started traveling, looking for diamonds. He even uh, left the Golconda region and traveled most of the known world at the time. Well, uh, as he traveled, he didn't find anything, searching everywhere. He became poor and so broken and so defeated that Ali eventually committed suicide in a foreign land, totally broke. Well, fast forward a little bit. I who bought Ali, Ali's farm, uh, he was taking his camel down to get a drink in the garden. And as the camel put his nose into the brook, the owner uh, looked and he saw this weird flickering light coming out of the edge of the water. And he thought, what, what is that? And he bent down and he picked up this rock that was clear and shiny and sparkly. And he had discovered a diamond. In fact, he ended up discovering uh, the mines of Golconda on that very property. Some of the most famous, historically famous mines in the world for diamonds. Poor Ali. He sold everything he had, went searching for something that he already had, that was already his. I wonder, do you resonate with that story a little bit? At times, as Christians, God so loved us that he gave his son, he gave us every good and perfect gift, yet how often are we kind of like Ali? where we go, ah, but I don't know. I'm not really content here. I'm not happy here. I just, I gotta search after something else. I want something more. Do you do that? Or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, we do. Our hearts tend to wander. But thankfully, we're gonna see this morning, God gives us contentment. And he challenges us to, to find our contentment in him. So with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna dive into the word together this morning. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, you loved us so much that you gave your son, Jesus, you gave your life for us. And not only that, but you give us all good things to enjoy. Every spiritual gift, every physical gift, everything we have is because of you. And so would you help us to be content with all the good things you've given us to give you glory and uh, to not be in want? Holy Spirit, would you teach me even as I teach your word? work in my own heart toward this end. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, we're gonna be in uh, the book of 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to a young guy named Timothy. And you can turn there if you want. We'll get there in a bit. Uh, chapter six of 1 Timothy. Uh, and you need to know uh, that Paul's writing here to a young pastor, a young guy by the name of Timothy who he had left uh, leading a church that he had planted. And uh, Paul spends a, a little over half of his letter giving Timothy, who's young, instructions on how he should lead that local church, especially since he had other people who were older and wiser and more mature that he was supposed to lead as a young man. And so Paul gives him instructions. Here's how you ought to lead. Here's who to put in leadership. Here's all these different things you ought to do. And then he spends the rest of his letter telling Timothy what he should teach them. And do you know, nearly half of what Paul tells Timothy to teach has to do with money and possessions and things. It's kind of curious, isn't it? 15 to 25% of everything that Jesus said was about money and possessions and things. 
It's curious, uh, if, if we were to take that as, as a, a prescriptive of Paul's instructions to Timothy, that means every other week we should be talking about money and our stuff as we teach God's word. But you know, are you like most people, when you show up at church and all of a sudden the pastor starts talking about money, you're like, oh, what are you after, Josh? What's really your heart behind this? Well, I just want you to know from the get-go, in speaking of generosity, I'm not after your money. I'm not after your stuff. The church isn't after your stuff or your money. But on behalf of God, I'm here after your heart because that's what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants you to give your heart to him. And really, uh, that's at the heart of our stuff is getting after our heart. Because, uh, you know, we, we spend a lot of time searching for happiness. Do you notice that? Do you, do you spend uh, some of your life just searching for things that will make you happy, that will bring you joy? Uh, I think we all do. You know, we, we search for things that are gonna make us happy. The story is told of, of a pilot who looked down on a certain valley. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we search for happiness, uh, one of our things that we're always searching for, we think, well, if only this, then I'd be happy, right? If I only had this, I'd be happy. If that person only liked me, I'd be happy. If this person only loved me, I'd be happy. If I only had that job, I'd be happy. If I only lived in that house, if I only had this income, if, 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 I'd be happy. Well, as I was mentioning, there was a pilot uh, who was flying, and he always looked down over this certain valley in the Appalachians as he flew overhead. <clears throat> Every time he'd kind of crean his neck up and over the window to kind of look down at this little river valley in the Appalachian Mountains. Until finally, his co-pilot one day said to him, hey, what are you looking at down there? Why are you so curious about this place? And then the pilot revealed to him, he said, well, when I was a little boy, I grew up in that area and I would always go down to the river and, and sit alongside the river and fish. And as I was sitting there fishing, I'd look up at the sky and I'd always see planes flying overhead, flying by. And I always thought to myself, man, I wish I was up there. I wish I was going to someplace exciting. I wish I was flying a plane. <clears throat> and he said, but now, Whenever I'm flying over that spot, I look down and think, man, I wish I was down there fishing. Isn't that true? We, we tend to long for what we don't have and think that if we get it, that would really bring us true and lasting happiness. But it never does. Have you found that to be true? You get what you want and then you realize, eh, it's, it's nice, I like it, but there's still that hole. There's still that emptiness in me. I think back to when I was a kid on Christmas morning, speaking of Christmas, and you know, you'd get your presents and you'd tear through them and <clears throat> you'd open them up and be pretty excited about what you got and you'd be really fired up until that afternoon. And then you were tired from being up all night and what was once really fulfilling is kind of like, oh, okay. it's okay, I guess. It's nice. Do you have that heart condition? Or is it just me? I think we all do to some degree, don't we? We think, if only this, I'd be happy. But here's the problem. What we find out is that the more we get, it's, it's never enough. We find that it's never enough. Whether it's stuff 
or money or people or prestige or whatever it is. As soon as I get it, it's never enough. You know, Jesus talked about this, about being careful uh, as uh, we seek out treasure on earth. And then we're going to get to Paul's words to Timothy. But Jesus said this. He said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You know, this verse, this last fall, uh, kind of jabbed me in the gut and kind of twisted the knife a little bit. Actually, it was because my wife quoted this verse to me that it did. Uh, See, uh, last summer uh, during the pandemic, you know, everybody got stimulus checks and things like that. And we used uh, some of the funds that we got to get uh, an above ground pool in the backyard and enjoyed that and uh, spent some time putting that in. And of course, if you have a pool, you've got to get chlorine and learning that uh, the good parts of the pool sometimes are outweighed by all the maintenance of it and can be a little bit of a pain. But I got this big bucket of chlorine thinking this will last. And So I had it out by the pool and then over the winter it came into the garage and in the spring just left it in the garage until I got to about August and uh, started to realize everything in my garage was rusting. These are some of my clamps. Every tool I have out there is just, it was getting this big coat of rust on it. And it seemed like it just happened all of a sudden and it, it got on literally everything that was metal in my garage. So uh, I have a, God's given me a pretty nice road bike that I like to ride in the summer and, and go on some biking trips. And my bike, the chain was covered in rust and it has disc brakes. And so the rotors were covered in rust and the pedals where I clip my shoes in were covered in rust and everything in my garage was suddenly covered in rust. And I searched and searched and tried to figure out what in the world is going on. When you don't know what's going on, Google's your friend sometimes. And so I searched Google and I realized after a couple weeks of searching, uh, I saw on some forum, some guy say, hey, somebody else asking the same question. Why is everything in my garage rusting? He's like, do you got a pool? Do you keep your chlorine in the garage? Well, it's, it's a natural oxidant. So it, even though you have it sealed, it still seeps out. And especially anything low to the ground, everything's going to rust. I'm like, oh man, everything was rusting. And then uh, my Dear lovely wife said, you know, Josh, this will provide a good illustration someday because Jesus said, uh, store up treasures not on earth, but in heaven where moths don't eat it and rust won't destroy it. Isn't it true? Have you had experiences like that where, where something, uh, maybe you didn't have necessarily your hope in it, but you enjoyed it and you realize all of a sudden it's taken away and you think, oh man, I did have some hope in that. Well, Jesus says, don't put your hope in that. Don't, don't, because rust is gonna destroy it eventually. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, ultimately, Jesus is after your heart. And wherever your heart is, your treasure follows. Your treasure tends to be a, a little bit of a thermometer for your heart. Well, uh, let's get to Paul's words to Timothy now because Paul's writing to him and I mentioned he spends a lot of his time when he tells him what to teach, to teach about possessions and money and things. And in in chapter six, let me start reading uh, in verse three. uh, Paul says, teach and urge these things, Timothy. Timothy. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine or doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, well, then he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Paul's like, don't waste your time uh, arguing about things that don't matter, just, just arguing with words and even, even teaching that uh, pushes people towards godly living if it's with the wrong attitude. He says, because really, uh, godliness with, con- excuse me, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain, but he says godliness, not on its own, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, why does he say that? Well, he goes on, he says, because we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world, including your rusty tools, Josh. But if we have food and clothing, then with these, we will be content. I wonder, are you content with food and clothing? If that's all you have? Paul goes on, he says, but he's maybe speaking to those who are poorer there, you know, be content with what you have. Be content even with food and clothing. And, uh, but those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Uh, First, he says that uh, the desire to be rich, it it can lead to temptation into a snare for you and I, right? Well, what's a snare? A snare is just a trap for catching birds or animals. You know, uh, it typically has a noose of some type or a a wire or a cord that gets tripped and then snares someone. It's kind of like Scooby-Doo and Shaggy walking around you know, on on cartoons and all of a sudden they step in this spot and you're like, no, don't step there. And they step and they get caught up in a net hanging from the ceiling. Paul says the love of money, Timothy, tell people this because it's true. The love of money can be like that. It can be like stepping in a trap, in a snare, in a noose that just uh, scoops you up and suddenly you're bound by that. Warn against that. It's a snare. Uh, It can lead to all kinds of senseless and harmful desires, Paul says. Well, why is it harmful? Well, it's harmful if, 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 if it's something you love more than God himself. See, the problem with that drive is it's never satisfied because the more you get, the more you want and you realize it's never enough. I think we've probably, everyone in this room have experienced that to some degree at some level, in some area of our life, that it's never enough. You know, a a newspaper once ran a competition for the best description of money. And uh, the winning entry said this, I think this is pretty good. Said, money is an article that can be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And money is a universal provider of everything except for happiness. Oh, that's a pretty good definition of money. See, no, Paul doesn't say that to be rich is wrong. 
He doesn't say even to grow your wealth and become more rich is wrong. It's not. In fact, when Jesus teaches on wealth, at one point, it seems to indicate that uh, in one case, in one of his parables, that that was a mark of their godliness, that they grew what they had and cared for it well. That's a good thing. No, what, what Paul's saying here is the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Have you ever heard that quoted wrong? How do you hear it sometimes? What's the root of all evil in our culture? Money, money, that's the root of all evil. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's the love of money. It's when I desire to be rich so much that I love that stuff, I love that thing more than I love Jesus himself. More than I love Jesus himself. It's the love of money that's a root, not the only root, but a root of all kinds of evil. See, it's, it's idolatry. Idolatry is when I put anything in the place that only God deserves. And the love of money can do that. It's a root of all kinds of evil. But money itself is an evil. In fact, money is a great thing. It's a great tool. It's a tool that's used by God to, to bless your family, to bless the church, to bless the community. Uh, money is a, is a good, good thing. And, but just like any good thing, when we love it more than God, it becomes a snare and a trap for all kinds of things. You know, you ever wish you won the lottery? You ever wish that? Uh, there was a guy I saw in the news about 10 years ago who had actually won the lottery but then squandered most of what he had. They were talking to him about it and they're like, well, what, how'd, you, how'd you do that? You had millions upon millions of dollars. And he said, yeah, I know. But the problem is when you come into all that stuff, it's like pouring miracle Grow on all of your character flaws. <laughs> and that's what happened to him. He squandered all of it. So be careful for what you long for, what you wish for and want. Uh, want Jesus most. And if you have a lot, enjoy it. Uh, because God, we're gonna see here, God gives it to us to enjoy. But don't love it more than Jesus. See, what I would contend to you, friend, is that when we search for happiness, really, what's happening is deep down, we're longing uh, to be content. We have this longing for contentment. So what, is, what does it mean to be Content. Well, uh, let me give you this definition. I think contentment is not wanting what I don't have. If you were to summarize it in two words, you would just say contentment is just not wanting. I'm not finding myself in want of what I don't have. You know, desiring it in an unhealthy way. How would you define contentment? I think you could add to it though and, and then also learning to want what I do have. To want what I do have. And in this case, contentment is just a state of, of satisfaction and of peace and of not wanting more. And really, when I get there, I get happiness. Not by getting stuff, but being content. Uh, but, you know, we live in a culture that's never satisfied, don't we? I, I, I don't know. I didn't live in, in other times and places. Neither did you. But I would imagine today has, has got to be one of the hardest times for any of us to be content. Because we see it all the time, you know, we got these little screens where we can just pull up whatever it is we're looking for. We can order whatever it is we want and have it the next day. Or if you live in, in an urban area, you can have it the, that afternoon and you don't even have to go out and get it. Somebody drives up in a blue truck with a smiley face on it and just puts it on your doorstep. 
Pretty great, huh? It is pretty great. But it makes being content pretty hard at times. Uh, and contentment, not just with stuff, but even in attitude. Uh, have you ever heard your kids or anybody else just say, I'm bored? You ever said it yourself? I'm bored. Why don't you go do something? I don't know, I'm just bored. What are you doing? I'm bored. Why are you bored? Maybe you're boring. I'm bored. <laughs> do you know what boredom is? Boredom is just a symptom of discontentment. It's, the pre- it's a presenting sense symptom. In, in fact, that word uh, boredom doesn't even show up in other cultures throughout history. It's an invention of Western culture in the last uh, 100 to 200 years or so. Uh, Winifred Gallagher, uh, she's a writer, and she argues this, that what we call boredom, she defines it as the unpleasant sense that there's nothing that interests me. Boredom is largely a recent problem that still doesn't exist in many places around the globe. Here's what she writes. She says, Situations that would strike us as unbearably dull, say waiting for hours or even days on a bus are considered just the way life is in many developing countries. Then she quotes, she says, the anthropologist Henry Harpending has done extensive field work in the back country of Africa, where in most ways, he says, folks are just like you and me. Folks are just like you and me, but one thing that Westerners that go there cannot understand and are open-mouthed about is the people's tolerance for tedium. I mean, they can just sit under the trees all day long. Well, this guy, uh, he's fluent in Bushmen, and he tried for 20 years to elicit a word out of their language for boredom. And the closest thing he could come up with was tired. Because boredom is simply kind of a made-up concept we have, which is really just a presenting symptom of being discontent of wanting something I don't have, of not wanting what I do have. But if, if you get to go to India or if you've been to some places like that, uh, speaking of India earlier, I mean, you, you'll see people sitting around just waiting and that's just how life is and it's okay. I wonder what are some other presenting symptoms of discontentment? Complaint? Do you have a complaint-filled heart? Oh, I just wish, well, why do they do that? Why do they think that? Why do they dress like that? I can't stand their voice. I, you know what I mean? You're just, you're just discontent and just uh, critical all the time of someone or something. Do you know what that is? It's a presenting symptom of being discontent. An attitude of the heart that wants something I don't have, like a situation to be different so that I like it or, or not wanting what I do have, maybe a situation that isn't exactly what I want. And contentment covers a lot of ground. Think of all the things that we're called to be content about. Our wealth, you content with, uh, with your bank account, with how it looks today? Your 401k, I mean, are you content? How about food and clothing? We read that already, we're being content with, with food and clothing and this will be content. A beauty is a struggle for contentment for many. Not just women, but men and women, boys and girls. Wanting to see somebody different or something else when we look in the mirror or step on the scale. How about your car? You want a different car? One that doesn't squeak when you go around the corner? Uh, your house? Your spouse? Your family? Your career? Your job? 
You know, what is it that, that you're discontent about? Uh, contentment and, and, and a lack of, of not wanting what I don't have, wanting what I do have. You know, uh, that idea makes God's top 10 list in the 10 commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 17, we read this. Uh, Paul says, or Paul, excuse me, God says to Moses to write this down, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey. You're not to covet those things of your neighbors. And you're like, yeah, but Josh, my neighbor doesn't have a donkey. I don't think this applies to me because like, if he even had a donkey, I don't think I'd even want it. So I don't know what I'd do with it. So what's the point? Well, then he goes on, he says, or anything that's your neighbor's. You find yourself jealous and coveting things you don't have? wanting what you don't have. Uh, God saw it as such a problem, a symptom of our hearts that he, he put it in the top 10 list of commands that he gives us, not to covet. So this is the deal. It's, see, it's not wrong to, to want things. It's not wrong to desire something I don't have. But when God speaks of coveting and jealousness, it's, it's, it's wrong to want it in the wrong way, to want it in such a way that, as Paul wrote to Timothy, it's a love of money, it's a love of rich, it's a desire in an unhealthy way to, to get something I don't have or to not be content with what I do have. And to where that thing or that circumstance, whatever it is, becomes God rather than just a gift to me. It's not wrong to desire those things, it's not wrong to have a lot of money or to not have a lot. But it's wanting those things wrongly can be a, a, a deep snare and trap for you. Uh, so how do you be content? Well, I have good news. Because Paul not only tells Timothy to charge everybody to be content, he, he writes to another church telling them how he's found contentment. In Philippians chapter four, he, he writes this. Uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And, and you read that and you think, okay, Paul, how'd you do that? How do you learn to be content? Because I, I know even as I search for happiness, really what's happening, I'm longing for contentment. And he goes, I've learned how to do it in every situation. I, I know how to be brought low. And Paul did know how to be brought low. I, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He's learned the secret of being content. Whether, whether he's well-fed or whether he's, hung, whether he's hungry, whether he's uh, uh, living in plenty and has everything he needs or, or if he finds himself living uh, in squalor and in want, he goes, I found the secret of being content. You wanna know what it is? It's right here. He says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. Now, if you go home and watch football this afternoon, you might see Philippians 4.13 scribbled on somebody's eye black, right? Under their eyes, if you look, they zoom in on their helmet. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But maybe you'll remember now that really what Paul was saying is that in Christ, I can be content in any situation. That's the strength he gives me. He gives me himself so that I can be content. See, there, there's, uh, our culture likes to draw lines between rich and poor, 
And he likes to draw all kinds of other just silly lines to divide people. But, but arguing maybe that, that rich is, is evil and wicked. And if you got a lot of money, you ought to feel guilty. And I can't believe you have so much money. And that if you're poor, also righteous. And, and even if you squandered everything you had, and that's why you're poor, and you did something unrighteous to become poor, all you. But do you know the Bible doesn't draw those lines? The lines the Bible draws is there's righteous and there's unrighteous. And in the unrighteous side, there's people who are incredibly poor, who in their unrighteousness became poor or who want wrongly all the time. And on the unrighteous side, there's people who are incredibly rich, who have more than you and I will ever see in our lifetime. And they're, they're unrighteous. But there's the righteous side too. And in the righteous camp, there's people who are incredibly poor, but they live in a way that honors God and they're righteous. And there's people who are incredibly wealthy and they live in a way that honors God in their wealth and they're righteous. So that distinction between rich and poor isn't really the distinction the Bible draws. It draws a distinction of the heart between righteous and unrighteous. And no matter how much you have, whether you're living in plenty or in want, uh, you have hunger or uh, your tummy's full, you can be content and righteous in Jesus Christ. That's the key. Where's your heart? Are you learning to be content? It's not just poor and rich. Although, uh, you know, Paul, he addresses the poor there and, and the desire and want for things. But then he comes and he tells Timothy to talk to the rich too. And uh, you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm not so rich. You know, I'm, I'm pretty poor. Well, uh, I did a little research this week. Do you know the average median income for uh, at least uh, a two-parent home or a couple, uh, two people in the house in Kosciuszko County as of 2020 is uh, $61,000 for a for two-person home. And that expands out from there. Uh, do you know what the average median income is for a household of two around the world? So that breaks down to about 30000 if you're single. Do you know what it is? $2,500 per year for a two-person home. That means if you meet that average of, of, in your household of 61,000, uh, you are richer than about 96% of the entire world population. And let's just back it way down. Let's say, let's say you're only in like that $30,000 range. Uh, then you are richer than about 93% of the world's population and you're in the top 7% of all income earners in the world. And you go, hmm, okay. Well, maybe I do have a lot. And then Paul addresses us. He says, for the rich in this present age, which is most of us, Paul tells Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud in your wealth. Think you're better than somebody else who maybe has less. Nor set your hopes, here's the key one, on the uncertainty of riches or on all your tools in the garage, never resting. Don't set your hope there. I can talk to you about it if you did. No, set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, it says, we're, those of us who are rich, we're, we're to do good, to be rich in good works. Uh, if we have a lot, to be generous and ready to share it. 
And thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we might take hold of that which is truly life of Jesus himself, of storing up treasure in heaven. See, I can, I can parlay and invest the wealth God's given me now for eternal wealth that'll never rust out, that will never be stolen, that will endure forever. Paul says, if you're rich in this world, then uh, don't be haughty and proud. Don't uh, set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but be rich in good works and be generous with what you have. Be generous. And, and notice this as well. Uh, don't set your hope on, on things, but on God, on Jesus. He's your true hope. And notice what he does. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you know what that means? If you have a lot, you don't have to feel guilty about that. God's given it to you. He's entrusted it to you to enjoy. And you can enjoy it. You can. And bring glory to God in it. Just don't set your hope there. See, the problem is when, when, I, when I set my hope on my stuff and not on Jesus, when, when I go like this with all my stuff instead of like this. If I'm like this, then, then I'm setting my hope on my stuff. But if I'm like this and I'm saying, hey, it's ultimately God's stuff, I get to enjoy it. This is pretty cool, but I'm gonna be generous with it as well. Where's your hope? Where are you setting your heart? See, because ultimately, friends, when we search for happiness, usually we're longing for contentment, if we're honest. And that contentment is only in Jesus. It's not in our stuff. And I would imagine everybody in this room, we could give a testimony to that fact, that we know that to be true. And that God calls us to live it. See, again, back to when I, when I kind of hoard my stuff and hold it tight as my own, uh, my stuff, when I love it more, it becomes God rather than gift. I think that's a good evaluation of how do I view my stuff? Am, am, I, am I striving after, <clears throat> after that and valuing that most and always wanting more and finding it never to be enough? But well, then that, that thing has become a God. It's become an idol in my life. It's a love of that stuff rather than what it truly is, which is a gift given to you by God to enjoy, absolutely to enjoy, and to do good works with, and to bless others with. And you see, it's, it's really not about then your stuff, it's about your heart. It's about your heart. As we wrap up, uh, I wanna quote to you from uh, a guy by the name of John Piper. He's a uh, retired pastor in Minneapolis, and he wrote a book a number of years ago uh, called Desiring God. <clears throat> and he developed something uh, he coined and called Christian hedonism. Do you know what hedonism is? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure all the time, just the pursuit of personal pleasure. And so when you marry that with Christian hedonism, a lot of people went, what are you talking about? And, and he was meant to be provocative in it. And, and here's what he says. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He kind of turns the whole principle on its head and says, if you really want uh, true joy, true pleasure, true happiness, find it in Jesus. 
He's your ultimate source of happiness and of pleasure. Uh, the psalmist writes, at his hand are pleasures forevermore <laughs> that, that never break down, that always endure. And so if you wanna seek what truly lasts, seek Jesus. Be satisfied in him. Learn to be content in him like Paul. And then God will be most glorified with your life and with mine. Uh, friends, if you're seeking for happiness, you're really longing for contentment. Find it in Jesus, not your stuff. Let me pray.